You're listening to Don't Waste Water. We know that there is more money spent on harming the planet right now than there is in regenerating this planet. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. There's not one. There's nobody that's going to be able to stand up on right now and say, I know how to solve the problem of natural markets globally. There's just not. And I think we have to be realistic at this and we've got to be extraordinarily pragmatic. And it's not about just throwing money at startups and say, here, you go solve the problem, you go solve the problem. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and today's release is the direct follow-up of the first part of my conversation with Katrina Donahy. This collaboration is quite important because we want to show the rest of the world to other blockchain companies that you don't need to solve all the problems within your ecosystem. Katrina is still the CEO and co-founder of Civic Ledger, a company building trust layer solutions for the markets of tomorrow. The digital infrastructure is not the challenge, it's human beings that are the challenge. So before we start, hi Katrina, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. So that is a direct sequel to the rest of the discussion we had the first time. And uh, let me just recap what we've discussed together so that we have a good common base and then we can go to the next part of it. So we've discussed how your experience with governments and NGOs led you to realize that there was a problem with the traceability of funding, how in 2015 you stumbled upon a book about Bitcoin, that's me saying that you stumbled upon, I guess you maybe choose that book, uh, which you've called Serendipity. You've explained how your encounter with Leanne Kemp was a decisive moment and how the Queensland Government's Innovation Summit in 2016 was the last piece of the puzzle that led to Civic Ledger, the company that you co-founded and where you serve as a CEO today. You've explained how people roll their eyes when you mention blockchain and how when you started developing Civic Ledger, you avoided speaking about the technology to rather focus on the challenge to solve. And that challenge, now in my words, would be if I try to nail it down to two parameters, information asymmetry and opacity, which ultimately leads to a lack of trust. So we've discussed how water markets suffer from all these issues while pouring an additional layer of complexity on top of it as water is a public good with a misunderstood economic value. You've told us about the complexity of these water markets today, especially in Australia, how fragmented they are, how slow they are, and how many actors play across them and some of these actors being quite far abroad. And you've shown how water sits there and evaporates, to really directly quote you on that one, as a result of this complexity. Now to lead you into what I'd like to discuss with you and start with today, at Civic Ledger, you've developed Water Ledger, and Water Ledger could at the same time be a vehicle for decentralized trading and a global depository to record all water transactions, including their price, which you've underlined last time, is often not recorded today. And if I got it right, that came out during the crypto winter in 2018, when you intensively invested in R&D. And that paid off because you've explained us how you had a pilot in far north Queensland in 2020. And if that recap is about right, the point where I'd like to start our conversation today is how you're expecting to now roll out Water Ledger on a bigger scale, how that works and what that involves. Excellent. God, that sounded so intense. It was like, really? <laughs> All of that? It is about what do we do with this now because obviously exploring around going from proof of concepts to project to pilots and then proving out the technology through projects. At some point, you've got to deploy this into mainnet and really get people using it. So 
there's still a lot of things that are at play to actually bring the tech like this into a marketplace, which is really around the concepts of governance and regulation. Because um, unfortunately, we I'm in Australia and obviously our state governments like to look at things very differently. They don't have a consensus on a lot of things around meanings and words and legislation and things like that. So how we're taking the rollout of what we're doing up in far north Queensland and moving across northern Australia is really taking a place-based approach because water is extraordinarily local and we have to respect that water is very, very local. So place-based economics or through the lens of place-based socioeconomics allows us to understand how water is understood within a local environment. So you move little bit by little bit. It's not like a rollout where you take the full region and you go for that. Well, we do. We we're looking at from a full rollout in terms of the digital infrastructure. I mean, the digital infrastructure is not the challenge. It's human beings that are the challenge because the regulation and the way the institutions have been built up over time, they don't interoperate around data information. And one thing that you may be doing in Queensland may not be the right in Northern Territory or Western Australia. And also water markets are still emerging in Northern Australia because most of the water markets are down in the south part of Australia, being Murray-Darling Basin. So you need to get that really precise alignment between investment in water infrastructure and the development of the water market. Water markets can't be developed before the delivery infrastructure has been built. And as we all know, investing in water storage and delivery infrastructure for agriculture, mining, urban is extraordinarily expensive. So that means that your software rollout is really dependent on the hardware infrastructure. We've discussed last time about this potential interconnection between the hardware in the future with IoT, which could lead to a digital twin of that infrastructure as well. Yes. To that extent, that could be a chance because that means if the infrastructure doesn't exist, you can start from the beginning with this, this idea. Yeah, that's the whole goal is to, because we've got such a great collaborative team with the CRC for Developing Northern Australia, Far North Queensland Growers, Inclusive Growth, and the partners that we're building through the stakeholder engagement, is that they actually get this, that for us to actually have efficient water markets, we have to interoperate the market with the delivery infrastructure. And often you build dams and infrastructure without thinking about the market, which we've seen globally. So we have this once in a generation opportunity as we design the roadmap of how water markets to emerge across Northern Australia, that we're thinking about the markets at the same time as we're thinking about the delivery infrastructure. Because if we add those really great tech around sensors and IT and then through smart contracts where we look at the operations of the water delivery infrastructure, we can actually reduce its cost because we make all of the systems quite more efficient. But on the other side of things, and this is probably quite global, is that water infrastructure is now considered as a critical asset because we've seen cybersecurity attacks on water assets all across the world. So you have to have that heightened layer of cybersecurity across everything we do as well. So that means that when there's a story like the story in Texas last year of someone trying to hack a drinking water treatment plant, at the end of the day, despite blockchain being probably the most secure thing there is, you have a bit that taint of, yeah, but maybe even more secure than that would be to go offline and to do everything with just hardware because everybody knows that nobody's ever touching a valve physically. Yeah, so it's so we're living in a very complicated world, but we all understand that blockchain technology doesn't exist in a vacuum and it doesn't exist in a world by itself. We have to interplay and interoperate with multiple complex systems. 
So I guess that's why doing this work in Far North Queensland and having Atherton as the test bed because it's such a great space to look at because it's grown horticulture, it's got a good depth of market, it's got great um, growers in there, sort of just trying to understand what is the governance systems that we need to be thinking about if we roll out this infrastructure or this digital layer. And it's just not for water markets. I mean, yes, we have water markets as the first rollout, but we're able to through the work we're doing with the Critical Minerals Project with Everledger in Australia is about creating an ethical passport on ESG related to how critical minerals, rare earths are mined out of, you know, taken out of the ground, how ESG is associated with the site or the operations of the mine and then the ESG that's associated with the commodity that then goes into the fourth economy, which is batteries, EV vehicles and that sort of stuff. In Australia, we're testing out how blockchain technology can give us provenance and we're looking at water accounting so we're looking at the water accounting framework which is informed by the GRI standard and the CDP standard the global reporting initiative so the water market is just one of the first layers we do but we know that there are agriculture supply chains in northern Australia using blockchain technology so how do we interoperate with those supply chains how do we pass data from the water markets across into those supply chains so the customer can know how much water was used in the growing of that crop and things like that so we're only at the very start of where the technology is going to go but it is really hard work you know people say why don't you just build a bridge between the blockchain technology, why don't you just use Polygon? Or, and it's like, it's fine if you're moving cryptocurrency between different protocols because you can wrap, you can do layer twos and things like that. But when you're working with data that needs to have integrity, so the integrity cannot be lost as the blockchains move, you know, the data moves from one protocol to another, this is really hard stuff. And um, we're doing a lot of that in Australia at the moment and breaking ground and it's hard work. But I see that our work in Northern Australia is just a start. We would like to see other blockchain companies coming in and interoperating with our technology. But aren't you somehow playing against the startup book? Because it's about, you know, focusing on something and nailing it down and, and really going to the bottom of the rabbit hole. And now you're interconnected to the infrastructure, which means you have a hardware element, which is always tricky, as we know. Yeah, but it's not a case of us actually having to solve that problem because we know companies that build dams and you know storage infrastructure and things like that. It's just about bringing that digital first mindset to them in the first instance and saying, if you do take a digital first mindset, not only are you able to understand security of data and things like that, but we can actually make these things more efficient. And it actually helps us better manage water resources because we've all got this digital inconnectivity. And I think the other thing too is when you're working with this technology, your first position is open source. You don't build proprietary software systems that are rent-seeking. You're building interoperable open source systems where you want other startups to build with you and interoperate with you because the only way you're going to grow as a company and get network effect is by opening up your platform with SDKs and APIs and enabling and incentivizing other startups to solve certain problems within your ecosystem because you can't solve everything. Does that mean that you have already partnerships ongoing with other startups or other players which are integrating your ecosystem and leveraging your platform? 
Well, not yet, but we're working with Eva Ledger on the Critical Minerals Project, which is the very first time. And as you know, you my you know my backstory with Leanne. So for me to be six years later, and my company and her company are working on the biggest blockchain pilot that this country has ever seen, is really quite an interesting position for me to say, here I am, our company is working with one of the biggest blockchain companies on the planet because Leanne is extraordinarily successful. And we're actually coming together because we know they are very, very good at solving their problems around provenance and supply chains and stuff like that. And they know that we're really good at water data and water markets. So we reached out to each other and said, because we knew that this grant was going to come out at some point, but we didn't know the context. So it's this collaboration is quite important because we want to show the rest of the world to other blockchain companies that you don't need to solve all the problems within your ecosystem. If you frame what you do around interoperability and open source, it doesn't matter because they use Hyperledger Fabric, so they've always used the private permission blockchain, whereas we've always been on the side of the public blockchains. You can solve problems. And how do you determine your key performance indicators? How do you define the, the base level of efficiency of everything you're trying to solve today? Because most of the time that data simply doesn't exist. What you have to do is go back to, you know, again, the concepts of human-centered design and go back to the people that had the problems. So Everledger did an enormous amount of discovery work as we got the project started off. And they went to the miners and said, well, what's your biggest pain points? And then the regulators and said, what's your biggest pain points? But for the critical minerals industry in Australia, they really want to tell their story. They want to be able to show their story, that they are being good stewardships, undertaking good stewardship of our planet and the way that they extract, do extractive, taking rare earth out of the planet. But they really are committed to wanting to be able to show that story and to be held accountable to that story. So there's a desire to share that story. So we go, well, how do we actually enable that to do, you know, how do we actually get that data out of your systems into this thing called an ethical passport so everybody can see your story? I don't know how that works beyond blockchain because I don't know if you follow that story of the natural asset companies which are now launched by the New York Stock Exchange. I think it's a partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, but they are leveraging this traditional tool of the stock exchange to say nature has a value and we can invest in nature and then on the long run you won't get dividends from nature but nature has services and if those services increase then you could be buying and selling those services to other stakeholders and to me that sounds like something that blockchain would be doing probably better because there would be a better traceability a better follow-up because the New York Stock Exchange is owned by shareholders. When you really think about blockchain does facilitate an exchange, why do we have crypto exchanges? So in effect, water ledger will become ultimately community exchanges where you actually have the ability for order books to be automated and things like that. But ultimately, you know, you move from a marketplace to an exchange. Are they the same thing? I don't know. Markets are a very local and exchange gives you an overall perspective of how the all those little markets are working. I always find it fascinating when we can't get the regular exchanges, you know, regular companies on the exchanges at the moment to be able to be accountable for the way that they do ESG. And now we actually want to sit up, stand up all these nature markets where all the data is extraordinarily flawed right now. You know, when we can't even agree on how to value our assets and all of a sudden we want to put it on an stock exchange and you sort of go, you know, there has to be a making money out of all of this. I mean, as we say, it's always a little bit frustrating because all of a sudden ESG became a really 
big thing last year and now everybody wants to have their fair share. But I just feel that it's not necessarily centralised exchanges that are going to solve this problem, the decentralised exchanges that are extraordinarily locally driven, where stewardship is actually at the heart of everything. If you had one key argument to give to someone which is an ESG investor, which is looking with love eyes at the fact that now they are natural asset companies, and you need to convince that person that decentralized and blockchain is the way instead of what he does on his daily basis and which is his daily bread of those stock exchanges, which maybe nails a bit better. What would you tell to that person? I think it's about verifying the data. So how do you verify the assertions that have been said around these data points? You know, how are you finding an independent system of record that's free of interests? How are you actually verifying that data, how are you confident that that data hasn't been changed, it hasn't been embellished, that it's not coming from a proprietary database because the person that owns that database is actually making a significant money out of it. And you've also got to sort of understand that nature is a long game. You know, it's a very long game. We've got to do an enormous amount of work on this planet to get it back, well, it's never going to be back the way it was, but it's a really long game. It's not a short game. And I just think it's probably a bit too early to throw this stuff on central exchanges. Some of your listeners might disagree with me, but I just sort of feel that we can't even get consensus of what actually ESG is, let alone start putting it onto exchanges and asking people to invest in these shares when we can't even get companies to disclose their ESG in a transparent way except for an annual reports, and you can't verify it anyway. I don't know how global it is. I have a French tropism, so pardon me if maybe there are many other companies doing that in the world. But in France, some month ago, there was an ICO from a company called Carda Shift, and uh, they raised 10 million euros in this ICO with the intention to leverage cryptocurrency, in that case, and the blockchain technology to invest in only projects that could reshape our world and help solve climate change, help solve that carbon transition we have to undergo. And that is really from my layman muggle perspective, again, another way to leverage blockchain. Is it something you've been looking into, this element of having collective intelligence and decentralized management ways to look at the right approaches to solve a big problem? Yeah, look, ironically enough, we just joined a task force and it's just, we actually have our first kickoff on Monday night, well, Tuesday morning, my time, because I'm here in Australia. But the task force has been set up to look at natural markets and things like that. And we're having some interesting discussions at the moment because there's no silver bullet to solve this problem. There's not one. There's nobody that's going to be able to stand up right now and say, I know how to solve the problem of natural markets globally. There's just not. And I think we have to be realistic at this and we've got to be extraordinarily pragmatic. And it's not about just throwing money at startups and say, here, you go solve the problem, you go solve the problem. We're just going to have that data silo situation all over again. I think we just have to get some consensus of where we actually need to start from. And it's really about going to those businesses working collectively with businesses like we're doing with Critical Minerals in Australia and enabling them to start the, you know, don't stop them from doing what they're doing in terms of their business models because for ask them to start to go using digital assets and blockchain and all that sort of stuff to solve their problem, they're just going to look at you and go, I'm sorry, but I've just invested 
30 million dollars to do a discovery project and now you're telling me that you want me to move over to this it's not we've got to be realistic here and we've got to be absolutely realistic about what is the problem we need to solve how we're going to solve it but it's really about having some design principles and those design principles regardless of how who, who solves it if we come from the perspective of design principles that is that this is not to be owned by one entity, that this is not an asset or a market that can be owned by one person because once markets have vested interests where you have more power than over other people, it's just going to have a road crash like we've seen in the past. So it's not about saying we're going to have one silver bullet and all of a sudden we're going to have kumbaya around the world. We know that there is more money spent on harming the planet right now than there is in regenerating this planet. We all know this. We all know, we know the numbers. So how do we shift from harming to regeneration? And it's not to say that crypto is going to solve this. And by raising an ICO and all of a sudden you've got $10 million, you're going to solve this. Do you realize on how much money you need to have to shift? It's trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, but it comes down to behavior. It's about those companies that are doing the harm for them to stand up and say, or their shareholders to stand up and say, see ya, I'm not having a relationship with you anymore. Or consumers saying, I'm not going to buy your stuff anymore. This is not a problem that a crypto industry can solve. It's a shared problem. Therefore, it needs shared solutions and it needs to be accountability. But we can't build systems that are actually designed on the old way of thinking. And I get really passionate about this. You can hear my voice getting a little bit more... Because I get really quite cranky that all of a sudden, just because a company has raised millions of dollars, we're supposed to roll over and go, great, awesome, the problem's solved. No, we as consumers need to stand up and say, will we still support these companies that are harming the planet? As a shareholder, should I still sustain my shares in these companies that are actually, we know are doing harm to the planet? Politicians, stand up and be accountable. This is not about saying, pointing to blockchain and saying, oh, you guys can solve the problem. No, we can't. It's fascinating because, you know, I had that discussion on that microphone with Julian Kolbel and Florian Hebb, which are researchers at the University of Zurich, and they've been investigating the impact of impact investing. And the positive side of it is impact investing can be a trendsetter. And if the rest of finance follows the trendsetter, then something's happening. And you have modelization who show that if... 8% of finance was to go towards a carbon neutral or carbon negative direction, then you can solve climate change. But on the other hand, that relies on the assumption that the other 92% follow a bit the trend and you don't have that much opportunistic player who say, hey, if everybody divests from, I don't know, tobacco and oil, it's a great opportunity because I can make some arbitrage there and be winning a lot of money. So it is a balance to strike and it's about small pieces. It is, it is. And I feel that I appreciate the fact that the whole concept of decentralization and definance and all that sort of stuff is really pushing the needle because it started 13 years ago with the Satoshi white paper and look where we are now. It's extraordinary where we are now. But we just can't point to the industry and say, oh, great, we've solved it. All we need to do is build decentralized marketplaces and the problem's solved. No, we have got a lot more work to do and that comes down to how institutional regulatory frameworks are framed, how our politicians are voted into government and how governments need to be transparent and trusted by their citizens. So it's a roll-up effect, but it is about 
if we're actually thinking about marketplaces whereby nature is going to be at the heart of it, we just can't sit it on a centralised exchange that's owned by maybe, I don't know how many people that own the, the New York exchange that are run by one board and say that that's all good, we're going to solve the problem. That's just like the last thing you want to do. But it's really about how do you design these markets and that's where companies like mine do take on those design principles. But how cool would it be if every startup around the planet who are looking at this tech or looking at an aspect of the ecosystem come from the same design principles? That would be an interesting place to start. But that's where you're also acting as a trendsetter because, for instance, you're contributing to the World Economic Forum and you're sending over some messages how do they get received well the challenge i mean it's yeah it's been great that we were accepted into the world economic forum technology pioneers program in 2021 but do you remember 2021 was COVID, and 2022 is still COVID. so we've been one of those classes of 2021 whereby we've not been able to hang out with each other at all so we're still waiting for the opportunity for the 100 technology companies to come together as a cohort and sort of share our experiences but the WF does provide a platform for us. I'm very fortunate. I have a I have a lovely relationship with the WEF Technology Pioneers team. A shout out to Samoon, who is incredible in coordinating what he does. But, you know, it gets lost amongst all the other noise, I guess, too. But what we are seeing is the movement around, and the WF are leading at this because, as we know, globally, there's so many standards that exist trying to sort of set standards on how we measure and how we account and how we record and how we report. So the Global Reporting Initiative, the CDP, and then we have quite a lot of other um, standards and they're all trying to do exactly the same thing. So the WF at the moment is sort of doing this project to try to sort of synthesise all those different standards and and give companies a sort of a, a one lens to say, well, if you do it this way, you should be okay. So it's complicated. If you're an SME, a small medium enterprise, which is largely what in Australia, I think 85% of our businesses in Australia are SMEs, you know, how do you actually speak to them as opposed to speaking to the big conglomerates and things like that? How do you bring those SMEs across? And it's very hard when they're exhausted with COVID and flooding and, and then all of a sudden you have to say, by the way, you've got to be sustainable, you've got to have environmental goals and you've got to show your governance. And um, if you don't, well, you know, and they're like going, what do we do? So it's a supply chain thing and it's an ecosystem thing. Talking of an SME, let me go a bit back to Civic Ledger itself. What is your business model today? It's interesting because, as we all know, when you start really early, the technology is just not right. And because we were early, we had to learn a lot around how do we actually use this tech? How do we best use it? Does it actually do what we think it can do? And obviously a lot of it didn't, and a lot of it now is. So our first phase really was about proving out the tech in the first instance. So that was sort of stage one of Civic Ledger and we spent a fair bit of time working with governments. Yes, we did in the early days. We got to work with government. They were a lot more exciting back in 2016 and 17. And we got to explore and discover the potential of the technology, particularly one of our favourite projects was working with IP Australia, which is our patents office. And we were doing NFTs of patents 
and creating the two-sided marketplaces for those patents to be discovered and to go into non-exclusive licensing arrangement between the buyer and the seller or the IP right owner and the person that wanted to license that. And that went to Geneva. It got presented at the WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is WIPO in Geneva, and we got to present our work in April 2019. And interesting enough, just four weeks ago, they released their white paper on blockchain technology, and we have a little quote in there. So far, whenever I heard of NFT, I always heard of it for, let's say, speculation reasons and things I couldn't understand and couldn't just picture. And you just gave me a perfect example of what it could be doing in a clever way. I never thought of an oh, it's IP. Amazing. It's one of the most powerful use cases because when you think about a non-fungible token, it, it's rep- representing something unique, you know, that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And when you think about patents, patents are unique. And then we spent, once they were actually granted because their uniqueness has been proven and assessed and the IP right owner has been, the person has been granted an IP right, they only have it for 20 years. In Australia, anyway, we only have IP rights for 20 years. So you spend the next 20 years defending your IP. And that's why lawyers make a a hell of a lot of money because you've got to defend your IP, you know. So if you get any wind of some company that's kind of like in your area, then you get your lawyers out and you do a cease and desist and all that sort of stuff and spend all your money trying to defend it. What if you actually could turn it the other way and make your make your patents open source? How cool would that be? But you don't actually lose your authority or your ownership across the asset and you actually in control on how many representations of your patent is in the market to which you have non-exclusively licensed out to other innovators. That would be so cool. So non-fungible tokens are really critical when something is unique and you need to prove authority and ownership and those property rights and its value. And obviously a ledger is associated with that. The NFT is in the ledger. That's where it is. And you're taking a representation, you know, you you actually have a representation of that through that non-exclusive licensing agreement, which is all run through smart contracts. So that was a very powerful use case because it really showed that it had a good utility. And when we say utility, utility is about purpose. What can I use it for? Does it get me anything? Can I get any benefit from this? Um, and in the early days with ICOs, you mentioned ICOs, in the early days, you're looking around going, where's the utility on this thing? Where am I going to use it? Why would I use it? And then it's like, well, you've got to go to the exchange, you've got to exchange it for fiat, you've got to hold your tokens, and then you've got to use your tokens to get into the ecosystem. And then when you're in the ecosystem, you can exchange. And you kind of go, why can't I just use cash? Why can't I just do a tap and go? Why do I have to do this? So the utility is really, really quite important. So interesting now like it's now 2022 and wipo have just released their their blockchain white paper and it's a, it's a brilliant white paper it's so well written and i love the nft space funny enough what i love about the nft space and what i hate about the nft space but what i love about this nft space is the diversity that is now entering the industry because when it was just blockchain and crypto you had crypto bros and boy did we have a lot of them now the NFT is about creatives. And guess who happen to be the most creative people on the planet? Women. So all of a sudden we're seeing all of these incredible women entering the industry who are taking a position in the industry through the lens of NFTs. 
as an artist, as a writer, as a designer. And oh my gosh, like we've got Blockchain Week in Australia starting on Monday and it's a full week and on Wednesday in Melbourne is NFT Day. And if you open up the website and you have a look at day three, artists, creatives, storytellers, women, just walls and walls of these incredible, brilliant women that are engaged in this industry because NFTs have given them a mechanism to monetize their art, which when we've learned from the past that anytime you can go on the internet, you do a right click on a JPEG, pull it down, and you don't care that it's somebody else's art. Now, how cool that we can't do that. Well, you can still take the JPEG, but the ownership is still associated with the artist. That is a fascinating word, and I could be following your track, and then we go for another two hours. But I'd like to bring it back to my initial question, which was your business model, because I'm really intrigued when something is decentralized by essence. But how do we make money? Yeah. Well, basically, it is it is still a SaaS platform, so you have to make sure that the experience is still very much like a SaaS, so software as a service. But then the whole idea is that it's about transactions, high-value transactions and low-value transactions. So low-value transactions are like in the 0.000 cent, whereas high-value transactions are associated with the value that's being exchanged. So low-value transactions like admin, like set up your account, set up this, do that. Whereas high-value transactions is when the actual water is being exchanged because, you know, if you're buying, for example, five megalitres of water in, in Atherton, you could be paying between 70 Australian dollars and 250 Australian dollars per megalitre. And if you tally that up and it's five megs, you know, it's, it's quite a lot of money. So associated with that will actually be a transactional value. And that's basically how you make money. And because we are shifting away from Ethereum, we're still, don't panic everyone, we're still massive fans of the public blockchains and all that sort of stuff. But unfortunately, Ethereum is now, we've been waiting since 2017 since it's, for Ethereum 2.0. And we've been waiting for since 2017 since, you know, proof of stake. We're still waiting. And now, obviously, for the NFTs and everything like that, it's made it very hard for us to use Ethereum. And people will say, well, why don't you use Layer 2? And we go, well, the gas fees are still unstable. And when you're working with farmers and stuff like that and regulators, the last thing you want to do is having a fluctuation gas price and then, you know, seeding their wallets with different ETH values, which is costing us a shitload of money. And then you having to push that money back onto the market. It's not sustainable. So we have to think differently. So we're moving over to Hedera. Um, and Adara has a different consensus mechanism. It is an ecological uh, DLT. So it's a DLT. It's not blockchain. It's DLT. It's a different consensus mechanism, and they use Hashgraph. It still has a compatibility with the Ethereum virtual machine, and we can still use our smart contracts, but the consensus mechanism is different. And that means we don't have to pay the cost like we have to do with Ethereum. And they have a governance council. So it's a lot different, but still within the world of transparency and audibility. So we're playing around with their Guardian, which is about decentralized identity and credentialing and tokenization and rules, which is really important. And their Hedera token system service and their Hedera smart contract service. And it's, it's a better fit when when people get really hung up about the energy consumption of blockchains, as I'm sure, you know, your listeners go, but Katrina, the energy, we get all of that. That's why mostly we've been trying for all of this time. You know, don't forget if Satoshi Nakamoto was sitting around in 2008, imagining where it was now in 2022, 
would proof of work be the consensus mechanism that he or she or they would have actually agreed upon knowing but the whole reason why we have the energy consumption is because then it makes it too expensive for a 51 percent attack and some people will say well you can do a 51 percent attack and there will be engineers out there that say you could but if you want to take over the network, you have to have money full of that energy and then take out, stop the blockchain and go back about seven blocks and change the transactions to your favor and let it all go again. Now, nobody's really incentivized to do that. So hence why we have all of this energy around protecting the actual integrity of the network. And when we think about the way supply chains and siloed data systems and the way Google works and Amazon works and the way we actually consume energy for the way our Web 2 currently works. It annoys me because I kind of go, what about all the inefficiencies around the way we actually mint money? We get gold out of the ground, you know, you know, all of that sort of stuff nobody pays attention to. And it's like, well, that's pretty bad. But everyone, you know, wants to attack the blockchain because of the energy position. The interesting thing about this industry is that we didn't ask government for permission when the white paper came out and you had the community built on this. And, you know, nobody actually asked government. We didn't ask the bank. We didn't ask, you know, JP Morgan and, you know, EY and Deloitte and all those big guys that get paid God knows how much money from government to keep the status quo. And it's like nobody asked us. And now it's a trillion, trillion dollar industry that is now emerging with central issued digital currencies, DeFi, yielding NFTs, new economies, new creatives, you know, just a whole way of free thinking value. And now we're being able to lean into nature-based markets and say, how does this now solve us by understanding the value of our nature? How do we actually account for it? How do we actually measure it? How do we put it into an independent system of record? We can all agree on how much is the sustainable yield of this planet. That is so extraordinary in 13 years, people incredible. That's what I get excited about. I can feel it. <laughs> yes, I'm sure your listeners get too. I have a last question for you in that deep dive, and it's a bit my crystal ball question, which is, how do you see the future of Civic Ledger? Where are you heading? What will it tell you in five years that you were successful with whatever you've been doing since 2016? What would be really amazing is that, because where we are now as a company, we're actually building the consistent underlying infrastructure where we have a pre-trade permissioning thing, which is quite unique, but all the order management books, the entire order management, the matching systems will go through us across the world, will go through our system. And that's really hard, but that's the track that we're taking. So, for example, the first stage is that all water markets across the planet that will be built on our technology will go through our order management system. And we don't own it. The infrastructure owns it. Everybody owns it. But we'll always know the actual state of how much water we have on this planet and how much we're using. So that's really the ambition over the next five years is that we will be that underlying technology and everyone goes, oh, well, we know that that's been built by Civic Ledger. We know their history and we've got a whole ecosystem built with other startups into that as well. So I really like to think that that's where we're going to be in five years. In the traditional exception of business development, that would mean that you would have to have people sitting in different countries and promoting your solutions. Is that still true with blockchain or can you do everything based yeah. out of risk, Oh, no. I guess? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Look, it's about partnerships and it's about 
really building relationships with other people who actually have the problem, know the work we're doing, and they come to us and say, look, we think that your work is really interesting. We've got this problem in our country. So California is an area we're in. Um, South Africa, we're actually building relationships in South Africa. And we've got Fraser McLeod, who's our strategic partner and business development guy. You know, he's in France. So Fraser and I have known each other for many years. He's an ex-Ozzy who lives in France. And his background is the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. And he was there with me actually right from the day one when I had to write that funding application to the Australian government in 2016. And, and Fraser's doing an incredible job. And plus, the world is so small now when we think about, you know, how we got together. So it's really about building partnerships and relationships with the people who own the problem and then collaborating with them. Well, Katrina, it's been a fascinating deep dive. I think I could be doing number three, number four. It wouldn't be a problem because it's really, I mean, you've, you're passionate about what you're explaining. It's fascinating to follow your path, but I have to stop at some point. So let me propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Yes. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that last section, I try to have short questions which aim for short answers, but don't worry. If you need to have a bit more time, I'm never cutting the microphone and you'll notice that the one side tracking is always me. My first question would be, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? And I would have an idea of your answer. Look, I would say Critical Minerals is extraordinarily interesting. The Australian government just released their critical mineral strategy for 22 days ago and our work is in there with Everledger. Yes, they talk about Everledger, but our work is in there. Breaking ground, breaking our heads, but my gosh, so exciting to be leading that as a, in a frontier way. And women, you know, Leanne Kemp, CEO of Everledger, Katrina, CEO of Civic Ledger. Yes, you can tell that we were the early kids because we've got Ledger in our names, but this is led by um, Aussie girl, well, Kiwi girls because me and Leanne both women, both from New Zealand. So critical minerals, very interesting. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Yeah, startup land, hard work. Being an entrepreneur is something that people go, cool, aren't you an entrepreneur? I'm like, yeah, no, hard work. Look, this stuff is hard and I do not glamorize it, but learning by doing is always really hard and it has its great rewards and things like that. But boy, you do make a lot of mistakes along the way and you've got to have people telling you you're making mistakes so you can actually correct your behavior as soon as you possibly can. But doing entrepreneur land is very hard. So what was your biggest mistake? Oh, I think one of the biggest challenges when you start off doing this stuff is that you get really absorbed with the tech and you forget to do your basics of just governance within your own company from the foundation. So people who are going to start a company, pay attention to your shareholders agreement. That's all I have to say. Is there something you are doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Zoom. <laughs> I don't want to be doing Zoom in 10 years' time. I want to have a hologram. I want to be in, you know, somewhere else where I can actually interact with somebody but without leaving. I can't do this anymore. I think we're all over it. I don't want to do 2D anymore. I want to do 3D. I love that one. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector I think we're finally going to see the importance of water stewardship, finally. I think it's going to be the drive. It's going to be our lighthouse that we will follow, water stewardship and very place-based approaches to the way we you know, manage our water as a public good but also as an economic driver. How would you define water stewardship? 
what a stewardship is basically taking care of this, these assets, not only from a public good perspective, but from a cultural perspective, an environmental perspective, that we look at cultural values, we acknowledge our First Nation peoples across the planet and, and reinstall that relationship that we've taken away from them. We have to reinstall their relationship with their water because it's actually part of their history, their culture and their religion and their spirituality. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Oh, that's very polemic. Oh, my goodness. It's a little bit polemic what I'm about to say, but be patient. I would break down the institutional silos. I'd actually abolish the World Bank and these massive institutions that have been built up over time. They do amazing work, but they're just the self-interest and driven in those institutions are just too large. We need to decentralize them. So still take the principles of these incredible organizations that do incredible stuff, but we need to decentralize them and bring them into local environments rather than having them in centralized cities like, you know, and creating ivory towers. We need to decentralize. So you see, we're not that far from what I was telling about Carter Shift uh, minutes ago, which is like a bank decentralized I know it's, it's not about Carter Schiff. It's about saying that the World Bank could become... Microbanks. Microbanks, you know, and these little nodes that are very local-based so they understand the problems at a local level and enabling financial, bringing in private financing and public financing together to actually manage and solve problems at a local level. Because at local level, people actually know their community. They know, and talking to the First Nation people, they are our first scientists, virtually the animals are their first scientists, but our First Nation people can tell us history about land and water and Mother Earth and Father Sky and actually say to us, listen to local environment. It's telling you on how we to be better stewardships. So decentralize break those big institutions into decentralized nodes, make them local-based so we can understand and align, obviously aligned with the STGs, but bring all of that back into a place-based environment, decentralization, break down the silos. I guess Muhammad Yunus would be agreeing with you and the Nobel Committee somehow agrees with you on that. So <laughs> <laughs> you must be on the right path. Last question for me in that deep dive. Would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite as soon as possible? On I the do, I do. And she is my favorite person on the planet in the water space. And that is the most beautiful Emma Westberg board, Wiesboard. She is based in Amsterdam and she is a young emerging leader in digital water. She is the most incredible woman. And her and I got to connect quite a few years ago and she wrote her very big, very first water blockchain piece on my company and with another other companies and she is incredible so i'm going to connect you with emma and you will go down an incredible journey with her story as well well i'm pumped up for that and i have to thank you quite a lot and even more than that for everything you shared on these now two parts of our discussion if people want to follow up with you where shall i redirect them the best sure okay we have our website civicledger.com We also have waterledger.com. Yes, I have a few websites. Don't worry, I'm consolidating them at the moment. You can find me on LinkedIn, usually Katrina, Katrina Donahue, or follow our company on LinkedIn. We also have Twitter handles, Civic Ledger, Katrina Donahue. Uh, Waterledger has a, a, yes, I manage a lot of handles. But you can find me and also you just Google me and there's a whole lot of stuff. Unfortunately, I have a very large digital footprint. 
Well, I'll try to centralize all of those in the episode notes. <laughs> so if you're looking and listening to that, uh, you shall have a look in these notes and, and find all the handles. And I have to say, you were very reactive and I reached out to you. So I don't know if I really oh, yes, please. The, the one, but you seem easy to approach and very convincing to discuss with. So Look, this is a global conversation and I'm only one voice. And the more voices that join this, then make, you know, it makes it happier for us because we were very lonely at the start. Um, and now we seem to see a convergence and it's really about bringing more and more people into the conversation because it's a multidisciplinary approach to solve a very complex problem. Well, Katrina, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And um, thank you. I'm looking forward to the future that you described. It sounds like a future where we'd like to thrive in. So I wish you a lot of success on that path. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.